Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to do something after he passed his comprehensive exams. So after, you know, four months of reading three books every day and recording a podcast and not sleeping and worrying and, you know, driving everybody around me nuts, I took the exam sometime in May and I passed. I actually did better than passing. I got a distinction. I was ecstatic. I was incredibly happy. And I spent the next month or so in a fog of almost high school-like summer vacation laziness. I wish I could say that I enjoyed it all, but I have made myself incredibly neurotic about work. And as I was laying on the couch and going on road trips and drinking in the afternoon, I was constantly worried that I you know, wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't actually being the kind of academic, public intellectual sort of person that I, in my best hours, think that I could actually be. So I thought it would be a good opportunity this summer to get back into the podcast, and that's why I'm here. I want to tell a longer, more polished, more coherent story and take a little bit more time over each episode than I did during the rush of orals. Think of this as season two. In season two, I will be telling one story. I'm going to tell this history not through the perspective of a country or of a person or of an ideology or of some kind of political development or of a war or of any of those other kinds of developments. I'm going to tell a history through a kind of thing. I'm going to be telling a history of coal. I think that usually when we're talking about history, we tell history from the human first. We see ourselves as the most important actors, but I think that human history right now is going to have to grapple with the fact we actually operate under severe constraints. That we're not just human beings doing our will to the world around us. We're not just human beings able to, you know, dictate what the earth does because we're so smart. We're not just human beings whose only constraints are other human beings. We are human beings that are animals that live in an environment that is affected by the things that we do. And telling a history through coal will let us see how human beings and this weird rock When we look at the history of coal and people together, we see that people are changed by the way that they interact with coal, and coal is changed as well. I want to change the way that you look at the history that you have in your head. And if this series is successful, I want you to pause every single time you think back over those big events and think about where people are getting the energy that they use to do things. Think about where they get their food. Think about how they drag stuff through the earth to get from one place to another. I'm recording this in 2017. It's the Trump administration. And Donald Trump often holds up coal miners as this kind of, you know, occupational symbol of the declining American productive classes. The coal miners are dirty and hardworking and brave and male, and they are being shat upon by the effete liberal technological developments that are going on over the rest of the country. 
And because of this kind of like political weight that's being put on coal miners, there's a lot of political discussion about how to revitalize the American coal industry. And so the subject has become highly, you know, charged. People on the right say that, you know, coal has been destroyed by President Obama, and people on the left say that coal is a primitive technology that America is inevitably growing to grow away from, and that the sooner that we can cut ourselves off from coal dependence, the better. Now, personally, it's probably pretty clear where I stand on this. I think that the sooner that humans stop burning coal, the more likely it is that humans will be able to continue to live at the kind of material prosperity that our generation is used to. But I want to push back on the left-wing conventional wisdom that coal is somehow completely unimportant. Coal still accounts for about 15% of all of the energy that the U.S. uses. That's not peanuts. That's still a significant proportion of the energy that we use. Uh, most importantly, coal accounts for a full third of our electricity production. Now, perhaps most importantly about coal, is that coal is really prevalent. There's a ton of this stuff. It's everywhere. In the US, uh, they've estimated that in the ground, there's about 3.9 trillion short tons of coal. We can't get to all of it, of course, because it's buried really deep in the ground, or it's in places that are difficult to get to, or it's under cities, but that's still a huge amount. 3.9 trillion short tons. Now we can get to about 250 billion tons of that right now. But more than just coal in America, coal is everywhere. Right now, with current technology and at current prices, we could get to 1.2 trillion short tons of coal on Earth. I just want to put that in perspective because, I mean, as soon as you start to talk about tons of coal, like it, it becomes impossible to think about. Like, how much is a ton of coal? Is that like a bus worth? Uh, so I crunched a little bit of the numbers just to put into perspective how much that is. If we burnt all of those 1.2 trillion tons of coal, which is the amount of coal that we can get right now, then we would put 3.4 trillion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, that is the annual carbon dioxide output of the U.S. over 600 years, or a full century of annual CO2 output for the world. So there is a ton of coal that we have at our disposal right now. Well, there's 1.2 trillion tons of coal. And we might discover more, and we might develop better mining methods. Compare this with petroleum. Oil does not occur in half as many places as coal. There's relatively few uh, oil reserves on the earth, and there's not as much of it uh, as there is with coal. Now, I did an incredibly humanistic back-of-the-envelope calculation using available numbers on the internet just now, and I think that the proven coal reserves have 3.5 times the available energy than proven oil reserves. Coal might not be the fuel of the present, but it could totally be the fuel of the future. 
So in this podcast, I'm going to tell the history of this rock, coal, and how it came to be so important to human history. This episode, I'm going to start off with a deep history of coal. I'm going to talk about what coal actually is and how it came to be formed in some of the biggest coal reserves in Britain. So I got a book called Coal Geology, and it is one of those big textbooks that just make you feel smarter when you pick it up because it's heavy, has this nice hard cover on it with a picture of a coal mine. And you open it up and it's filled with these, you know, really interesting technical diagrams of coal stratigraphy and all this real practical stuff that you do not get when you read historical monographs. And it had a definition of coal that I thought was really curious, and I'm going to read it out verbatim. Essentially, coal is a sediment, organoclastic in nature, composed of lithified plant remains, which has the important distinction of being a combustible material. Now, what this means is that coal is a rock that gets made by layer of layer of sediment, and this sediment comes from organic substances, namely dead plants. And then this sediment has, throughout whatever geological magic there is, been turned into some kind of stone. Importantly, we can burn this stone. So how does this happen? How does dead plant stuff get somehow turned into a hard black rock that we can then use to shovel into trains to, you know, power industrial revolutions and make the sky black. Like, you don't look at a tree and think, well, that's just, you know, a couple thousand years away from turning into coal. So how does that happen? Well, it happens in mires, which is actually a technical term. A mire is a kind of waterlogged, uh, you know, forest or vegeta vegetation patch. Um, watery, swampy places, let's call them. Uh, places with lots of trees, lots of plants, and also water. Now, when these trees die, they usually are somehow decomposed. Bacteria get to them, break down the organic matter, turn it into stuff that other animals can use, and then, you know, the carbon cycle continues. But in the watery environments of mires and swamps, some of this organic matter gets trapped. It doesn't break down completely. And this, you know, incomplete, decomposed, woody material then gets buried and buried and buried and starts to stop being wood and starts to get turned in to a kind of rock. This process is called coalification, and it happens slowly over time, and there's tons of different levels of coalification out there. The general rule is that the more coalified the uh, substance, the more carbon it has as a percentage of weight and the less volatile matter. We can think of this as kind of a, a way of purifying it. The more coalified a bit of wood gets, the more it has stuff to burn and the less, you know, smoky stuff that it has in it. So wood is about 50% carbon, 50% burning stuff, and 65% volatile matter. So 65% of the weight of wood becomes, you know, smoke. In comparison, peat, which is the beginning of the coalification process, 
uh, has about 60% carbon and 60% volatile matter. So it burns hotter. It is has more energy per pound than wood does. And indeed, in lots of places, they use peat as a fuel source. Bitumous coal, that is the kind of tarry coal of which there's tons of in Britain, um, has about 86 to 91% carbon in it. So it is significantly more energy efficient by weight than wood is. And it has less volatile matter too. It has less weird smoky stuff that can uh, contaminate things. Anthractite coal, which is the hard, you know, uh, very dense coal that is often used in steel making, has 95% carbon in it and only 2% volatile matter. So by weight, uh, 19 parts out of 20 of anthractite coal actually can burn and get turned into energy. So what happens? How does this wood turn into coal? How does, you know, a tree that's 50% carbon get turned into anthractite coal that is 95% carbon? Well, after the peat, after the partially decomposed woody stuff gets buried, it gets, you know, bedded in layer upon layer of sediment. And then time, heat, and pressure basically squeeze away all of the stuff that's not carbon, making it incredibly energy dense. So coal is common because peat is common, because these swampy, miry places with lots of vegetation and trees and swamps and things that don't get fully decomposed are really, you know, common throughout the world. 3% of the world right now is covered in peat. And when these peat fields get buried, if they should get buried, they, over time, will turn into coal. Different deposits of coal throughout the world were formed at different times. And there's actually been lots of coal deposition from the late Paleozoic era up into the recent era of, of geologic history. But I'm going to tell the story right now of one of the most important times of coal deposition, and that is called the Carboniferous Age. And this name comes from Britain, uh, and it's important because it is the geological time period in which a ton of British coal reserves actually got deposited. And when British geologists went through British hills and fields and looked through the layers, they noticed that sometime about 350 to 300 million years ago, there was this big chunk of the earth in which there was tons of coal. And they named it the Carboniferous Age. And that just means the age of the earth where there's lots of coal. The Carboniferous Age was weird. There were two big continents, Gondwanaland and Laurasia, and these two continents were slowly running into each other to create the supercontinent we know as Pangaea. Now, the continents were pushing up out of the Earth's crust, so more of them than ever were being exposed to the air. There was more land than ever there was before, but this land was really low-lying. There were less hills. It was, you know, low sea level where there was land. And the land was waterlogged and hot 
and tropical and swampy, and there were often floods. So these swampy forests were filled with new kinds of plants called like lycopicids and ferns and cephrinocids. And every paleobotanist who might be listening to this is just cringing at my pronunciation. And these weird seedless plants are the plants that became our coal. They were the first kinds of woody plants and trees, and this meant that they decomposed much slower than other kinds of plants around. Uh, and this slow decomposition meant that they made even more peat. Now, these new kinds of plants were much more woody, much more barky than the sorts of trees that we have today. They had about eight parts bark to one part non-bark, which is tons more than we have today. Today, your tree outside your window is probably one part bark to four parts not bark. The earth hadn't really figured out how to break down this woody, barky stuff as it would today. There weren't the funguses that could break down bark. Bacteria hadn't developed the enzymes possible to efficiently break down the new kinds of woody material. And so all of this together, the, you know, low-lying swampy forests, the heavy bark, you know, percentage of the new kinds of trees, and the frequent floods meant that there were lots of depositions of peat. And this peat was buried by flood after flood after flood, burying it in sediment, covering it up in sediment, covering it in stone, and this peat, these, these decaying lycopicids and ferns and siphonophids and all of these odd alien-looking plants stopped decomposing and started to turn into rock and started to become purer and purer and heavier and heavier and more and more carbon. The coal that the British coal miners dug up out of the earth in the Industrial Revolution, the coal that will form the basis of this story. Just to put it into perspective, this was the first time that animals started to lay eggs with amniotic sacs. These eggs with amniotic sacs allowed uh, the land animals to actually live on land far more robustly than ever before. So the coal that we have that fuels the Industrial Revolution is as old as eggs. And when people mine the coal, they go back in time. They dig up the layers and layers of the Earth's history, peeling away the sandstone left when the land was covered in oceans and forests and glaciers, and they go back in time to this alien and ancient world where there were trees without seeds that were eight parts bark to one part non-bark, where there were the first land animals and insects, you know, three feet long, when the world was a single massive continent. And we dig up that energy. We dig up the work that those plants did, and we use them today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. It feels good to be back, and I think I might be a little rusty, but uh, bear with us. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on Facebook. Tweet about us. Tweet to me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Special thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for all of the images. You can find Duncan at Duncan Draws on Instagram, and you can find Jonathan Lear on Bandcamp.